Lord, we come before you today to acknowledge that you are true. Your words are truth. We ask, as we have just sung, that you would cause your word to be planted down deep in us. Open our eyes to see and behold your truth in your word now as we gather together. Pray that you would be glorified in our time, that you would be blessed and praised by the worship of our hearts, that our worship would be a pleasing aroma to you in this hour. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. There's a question that's posed in the Bible that is a fundamental question to our human existence. This question has been contemplated and theorized by some of the greatest thinkers in history. And it's not a question, interestingly enough, posed by Jesus or by Paul. It's not even strictly a theological question, but it's one that needs an answer. You see, near the end of the Gospel of John, we find Jesus on trial. Having been betrayed by Judas and arrested in the garden, he is now standing before the governor, Pontius Pilate. And Pilate questions him, and he asks him whether he is the king of the Jews or whether he is a king at all. And Jesus kind of sidesteps that question, but instead he explains his life mission in this way. He says, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate's response is the ubiquitous one. The question, what is truth? What is truth? And perhaps to our dissatisfaction and perhaps dismay, Pilate immediately turns and leaves and Jesus doesn't answer the question. We are left to ask, what is truth? And that has been discussed and debated by philosophers for millennia, from Plato and Aristotle until now. And the definition of truth has changed Theory after theory, era by era. Even in just the last 200 years, as we've gone from the classical to neoclassical to modernist to postmodernist eras, the prevailing theory of truth and its definition has undergone multiple revisions. The most basic theory of truth was originally that truth has to match reality. Something is true and a fact only if it aligns with the way things are. The sky is blue, clear enough, right? But after more thought and debate, Philosophers theorized that truths can't stand alone like that. For something to be true, it also has to mesh and align with all other truths in a larger system of reality. But then some time passed, and they realized that an entire coherent set of ideas that jive with each other well can still be an entirely false system in and of itself. And so philosophers said, let's just say that whatever most people say is true is true. The theory is that consensus rules. Whatever society at large accepts is true. If everyone looks at this apple and says it's red, it's got to be red even if you have a few deviants. Even in a field like science, which is supposed to be founded on explaining facts about the natural world with precision, ends up following consensus theory. As long as most scientists agree, then it's scientific fact, at least for now. Based on the majority, now truth can change by the will of the people. And then, and then you get to postmodernism. Now the truth can change, not on the whim of a society, but by the will of a single person. Each individual now has their own truth. What's true for me might not be true for you. You have a truth, and you have a truth, and you have a truth, and you have a truth. And now mainstream philosophy says that any two people, even presented with the same circumstances, the same set of empirical data, might not only come to completely different conclusions when they look at it, but that they must now agree that both conclusions must be equally valid. We are now permitted and even encouraged to speak your own truth, right? Look, I just need to speak my truth. And unfortunately, everyone else is speaking their truth as well. And we're supposed to just accept that what's true for you might not be true for others, and the world says we cannot criticize, correct, or condemn each other for these differences. It's been just theory after theory age after age, on and on. Unless you think, what happened to the preaching at Zoe's? This is what happens when Pastor Jesse is gone. No, let's open our Bibles. Let's open our Bible. Let's leave this philosophy drivel behind us and turn to 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3. And if you're new to Zoe, what we usually do here is we preach book by book, verse by verse through Scripture. But as the church has been growing lately, we've decided to spend this season just realigning ourselves together as a church by preaching this short topical series exploring God's design of what the church, the local church, is supposed to look like. 
How are we supposed to be? And we've been looking at the different biblical metaphors in Scripture, the images of the church in the Bible. Let me read from 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. This is the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the word of God. Now, there's two metaphors here in verse 15. The first is the household of God, and we're actually going to get to that one in a few weeks. But the second one is today's topic. Today's metaphor is a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. So we'll dissect this idea today in three parts. First, the priority of the truth. Second, the profession of the truth. And third, the practice of the truth. So let's jump in. First, the priority of the truth. The priority. And what we'll see here is that truth is all about God. He is truth. His word is truth. Truth itself is founded on God. And that makes truth not theoretical, as philosophy will tell you, but theological. Truth is theological. When the Apostle Paul calls the church a pillar and buttress of the truth, notice he doesn't say a truth. He says the truth. Paul assumes there is a real objective truth, not only objective, but knowable, not only knowable, but that it needs to be at the forefront of the church's priority and purpose. If we are the pillar of the truth, our mission is to uphold this truth. Now, if you scan through 1 Timothy, you know, we kind of just jumped right in. Truth is actually one of Paul's priorities in writing this letter to him in the first place. Timothy is Paul's protege, and he's a pastor in Ephesus. And the Ephesian church is struggling with false teaching. So if you just look back at chapter 1, the first thing we see in verses 3 through 7 is a reminder to Timothy of why he had to stay in Ephesus in the first place. It was to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And Paul elaborates using words like speculation, vain discussion, confident assertions made without understanding to describe false teaching. At the end of chapter 1, he even calls out some of these blasphemers by name, Hymenaeus and Alexander. He says, I condemn them to Satan. Paul takes the teaching of truth and falsehood very seriously. But look at what he says in chapter 2. Chapter 2, he says, here's what God wants. Verse 3, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is the first time in the text Paul mentions the truth. And here's what he says about it. It's knowable. God has made it knowable, and he wants it to be known by you. He desires all men to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. This is God's desire. The knowledge of the truth is salvation. And he elaborates on what this truth is in the next verse, verse 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And that's it. Truth starts with God, the one true God. Then truth comes to mankind through Jesus. And this truth, this timely testimony, is the message of the gospel, the story of God's salvation. Let's take apart verse 5 real quickly. First, the truth starts with God, right? For there is one God. God is the only one true God in the universe. He alone is over and in control of all things because he alone created all things. Turn with me to Isaiah, prophet Isaiah chapter 45. It will be in verses 18 and 19. Now, the prophet Isaiah makes the claim that because God is the creator, then that means he is uniquely God. And then it is on the basis of that creation that God gets to establish himself as the authority on truth. Look at Isaiah 45, 18 to 19. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it, he did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. 
I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. You see, philosophy had something correct. Truth is rooted in reality. But who is the author of all reality? God. God, therefore, is the author of all truth. Everything began in the mind of God. Everything was spoken forth by the words of God, according to the will of God, reflecting the goodness of God for the glory of God. All that he created is his, from him. And therefore, all that we see and behold and know in this world is real and true and exists because God is real and true and exists. God is the source, the standard, the judge of all truth. If God says so, so it is. John MacArthur puts it this way. Truth is that which is consistent with the mind, will, character, glory, and being of God. The truth starts with God. And then moving on, truth comes through Jesus Christ. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. At the very beginning, I told you the story of Pontius Pilate. And there, Jesus said something actually really unexpected, right? He started saying, for this purpose, I was born. For this purpose, I came into the world. And now, Christians, what, do we, what would you expect to, to fill in that blank? What was his purpose to come? What purpose, uh, why was he born as a man? To die for our sins, right? To seek and save the lost, to lay down his life for the sheep, to give his life a ransom for many. We know that. He did all that, yes. But his answer is unexpected. What did Jesus tell Pilate? He says, for this purpose I was born. For this purpose I came into the world, to bear witness to the truth. To bear witness to the truth. How many of you here have ever written a story? It might have been a while for some of you guys. If you have little kids, maybe you tell them bedtime stories and, they, and you make them up. Uh, or maybe back in your school days, I remember we used to have district-wide creative writing competitions. Well, just imagine for a minute that you are an author, say a fantasy author maybe, like J.R.R. Tolkien. And you're writing a book, and so like him, you invent all sorts of characters and creatures and languages and lore, and you uh, write in all these amazing settings of mountains and plains and rivers and trees. And you stop for a second, and, and I ask you maybe, do you wonder as you write whether your characters know that they are created? Perhaps they do. I mean, within the story, they are sentient. They know they exist, and maybe they're curious where they came from. But as the author, how do you tell the characters that you exist? Sure, they can just look around and see all the beauty of the nature you've written into their story. They see that as evidence of your creativity and design, uh, all in the beauty of what surrounds them. That is possible. But how will they know that it's you? You need to tell them. You need to get into the story. You can insert yourself into the story as a voice from heaven, perhaps, or you, in, you can introduce another character, someone who comes on the scene to tell them all about their author. This analogy, of course, falls short if you think about it too much, but you know what I'm getting at. Essentially, in the person of Jesus Christ, God has written himself into the story to point to the truth of who God is. For this reason, I was born into the world to bear witness to the truth. Jesus came to reveal God firsthand to us who would behold him, God himself. And the Apostle John concludes his first epistle writing, And we know that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Jesus came so that he could show us the truth about the Father, who is the one true God. And moving on in 1 Timothy 2, 6, it continues. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The testimony, testimony that Jesus brings in his life and death and resurrection, is the truth of the gospel message. And this is the truth of the gospel, that the Lord God is creator, sovereign over all things, and therefore he also gets to decide and define what is right. We just read that in Isaiah. 
But we, his creatures, have not done what is right. We have failed. That is sin. We have all disobeyed God, gone our own way, and therefore we all deserve death as the penalty for our sin. But the good news is that God also did everything to work out his plan of salvation, that Jesus Christ would come and be born on earth as a man and humbly give up himself and give up his life, his perfect sinless life for us. And he died our death on the cross, enduring the shame and the pain of suffering the wrath of God on our behalf, which we deserved, which we had incurred. And after three days, he was raised from the dead. And in all of this, Jesus has made available to us the knowledge of the truth, this testimony given at the proper time, this truth that sets us free, free indeed. If we confess our sins and believe by faith, our sins will be forgiven and God will accept us as righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is the truth, the truth that the church exists as a pillar to hold up. This gospel is our priority because to every believer, this is everything. You see, in this postmodern world that can't agree on any truth or whether truth can even be known, can you see how we, the church of God, are in a unique situation? To be able to say that we know that we know and can claim for a fact that the truth that the truth isn't just out there, hazy and ethereal, unattainable. To be able to claim that truth doesn't change person to person or age to age or theory to theory because truth is rooted in the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. How unique is that to the church? What a truth. That is our priority. Knowing the truth about God is a priority because it affects our worship. We worship in spirit and in truth. We revere God because we know what is true about him and what he has done. And no other attraction in this world deserves our affection because none of them are true. Beauty will fade. Money will be spent. Possessions perish. Success will be forgotten. Loved ones will fail you. Good health will succumb to the grave. All these will pass away, and so none of them are worthy of worship. True worship belongs to God alone. And knowing the truth about God is a priority because it affects our suffering. The truth of God says that he knows you, and he loves you, and his will for you is good and perfect. Truth tells you that he provides a way out of every temptation. Truth tells you he will strengthen you in weakness. His power will be proven to be perfect. His grace is sufficient. That is what is true for the sufferer. Knowing the truth about God is a priority because it affects our hope. That for all of us in this lifetime can look forward to something greater than this broken world. Something beyond this life, something new and better, free from all of this depravity. We await our true and eternal home. The truth is our priority because truth is in God himself. And this truth affects everything. That's the priority of truth. Number two, secondly, the profession of truth. The profession of the truth. And here we'll look at the metaphor itself. We need to ask, what is a pillar? What does a pillar do? And why is the church supposed to be like one? What we'll see is that being a pillar and a buttress means that the church exists to hold up the truth and make profession of it. Now, in order to understand this particular metaphor, we need to all think like an Ephesian. Okay, like Timothy, who is reading this. Paul is actually using some ideas and phrases here that would evoke something in the Ephesian mind. So we need to get into their shoes. So let me ask you to turn to Acts 19. Acts chapter 19. And perhaps the most famous thing about Ephesus, the thing that people picture when they think about Ephesus, was a landmark. Okay, a landmark. There are a few cities like this. If I mention to you San Francisco, what is the image conjured up in your mind? The Golden Gate Bridge, perhaps? Or... Sydney, Australia, the opera house. Even my one-year-old Sophia knows this. We have a painting in our guest's bathroom, and whenever she goes in there, she points and she goes, Paris, Paris. It's a picture of the Eiffel Tower. Well, Ephesus was known for a landmark, the temple of Artemis, the temple of the goddess of the hunt or fertility, the temple of Diana. We hear about it in Acts 19. 
what's happening here is that Paul has been in Ephesus, okay, for over two years. He's been teaching faithfully from the Word of God day after day. So on a daily basis, he's there for hours reasoning with the Jews and the Greeks in public. And he's been very, very successful by the will of God. Let's drop in at verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, that is, the Christians, For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger Not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all of Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater. Skip down to verse 33. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Okay, we'll stop there. And just so I don't leave you hanging on this kind of weird ending, the stone that fell from the sky is probably a meteorite that they just believed came from Artemis, and so they worshipped it, and they worshipped her there at the temple. The point is, the worship of Artemis we see in the city of Ephesus is central to the Ephesian identity and experience. The temple and all of its associated businesses were a source of great pride and great wealth. And Artemis was a great goddess, and Ephesus was her magnificent throne. Let's talk about this temple. It doesn't exist anymore, but you've probably seen reconstructions of it uh, in art. And uh, it was a rectangular white marble building that looked like it was completely made of pillars, basically. Eight pillars on the short side and 20 or 21 pillars down on the long side. And all those pillars held up the roof of the temple, which was a simple sloped kind of triangular roof. You all know that image. You've probably seen it in your history books. Now, what we don't get, though, from the artwork is the sense of scale. Right? The building was twice the area of a football field. So this building is massive. And the marble pillars, there were actually 127 of them, spaced about 20 feet apart and 60 feet high, six stories up. Each pillar was 12 and a half feet around, so two of me couldn't get our hands around it. The roof was made of marble beams overlaid with wood and glazed tile, and each of those beams weighed 24 tons. To this day, they don't know how they got them up there. It's like Stonehenge. How did they get those, those beams to the top? It's no wonder that the Temple of Artemis was the main attraction in Ephesus. How many of you here use TripAdvisor? TripAdvisor, anyone? I love using TripAdvisor to make sure that on vacation, I'm hitting up all the best spots. But the closest thing they had to TripAdvisor back in 100 BC was this one guy. And his name was Antipater of Sidon. And he was a Greek poet and a world traveler. And he compiled this top attractions list, which we now all probably know famously as Seven Wonders of the Ancient World. The Seven Wonders of the Ancient World, the top seven things ever to see, and the Temple of Artemis is on that list. I'm going to actually read you what Antipater of Sidon wrote. The Seven Wonders of the Ancient World. You won't believe number one. Just kidding. He said, I have set my eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon and the statue of Zeus by the Alpheus and the hanging gardens and the Colossus of the Sun and the huge labor of the high pyramids and the vast tomb of Mausolus. But when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy. And I said, lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked on anything so grand. 
For the Ephesians, the greatness of their temple was a testament to the greatness of their city and the greatness of their resident God. And turn back now to 1 Timothy 3, because now you're thinking like an Ephesian. 1 Timothy 3, when Paul writes about the church of the living God, he's contrasting to Artemis, who he called offensively a God that is dead and a God that is no God at all, but made with human hands. And now when he speaks of pillars and buttresses in verse 15, every Ephesian resident would think of their great city's pride and joy. The monumental pillared structure they see every day going to and from work, the temple of Artemis. We need to look at these words. What is a pillar? The Greek word stulos is literally just pillar. Okay, it comes from a root word meaning set or fixed We don't really have pillars in our homes or construction today, maybe decoratively. But in a building, a pillar has one primary function, to hold it up, right? You think about Samson uh, from Judges, how he knocked down the two pillars in the middle of the Philistine house party and caused the roof to collapse and killed 3,000 of his enemies at once. In our homes, we have maybe the equivalent load-bearing walls, right? There are some walls in your house, if you've remodeled, you know that you can't knock down or move, at least you're not supposed to, or the house will just fall in on itself. At least not without major construction work to get it all ready so that your house doesn't fall. An entire building literally stands or falls on the effectiveness and stability of its pillars. But the word buttress is harder to translate. And it's harder to translate because this is the only time in Scripture that the word for buttress occurs. So we have nothing to compare it to. It's also difficult for us to understand in English because who uses the word buttress? I mean, what even is that? Junior high school me would be giggling right now. All other English translations use the word foundation or ground. One uses bulwark, which is even less helpful. But let me explain why the ESV probably chose not to use foundation or ground. First, there are way more common Greek words for foundation and ground used in Scripture by Paul, and if he meant foundation or ground, he would have just used one of those words. So he obviously didn't mean foundation or ground. But secondly, and more importantly, the word foundation or ground used in translations have historical significance in that it has led to severe doctrinal error. You see, this is the verse. This is the verse that the Catholic Church uses to explain that the church is the final authority on truth, not Scripture. Because they believe that this word in Greek means ground or foundation. And so it reads, the church of the living God, the ground of truth. The implication is that truth stands on the Catholic church, and the Catholic church, therefore, is the ultimate authority, basis of truth. They get to decide truth, decree truth, dispense truth as they see fit. And they take this verse as being God's design and permission for them to do so. The reformer John Calvin spoke against this saying, Our opponents locate the authority of the church outside God's word, that is, outside of Scripture and Scripture alone. But we insist, we reformers, that it be attached to the word and to not allow it to be separated from it. And Scripture defends this in multiple places. 1 Corinthians 3.11, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. You see, the Catholic Church or any other church that functions as its own source of truth is no pillar at all. It's trying to be the truth in itself. At best, maybe a sandcastle. But a true pillar exists to uphold a truth outside of itself. Not a truth invented by the church, but the truth revealed by God to his church. Going back to the word buttress then, I will say, sorry ESV, it's also not a great translation. Because in English, buttress is a supporting or stabilizing arm. It's one of those diagonal propping beams that you see um, on the sides of cathedral roofs like at the Notre Dame Cathedral. That's not how ancient Greek architecture worked. There weren't these diagonal supportive buttressing arms. But if you look back at the Greek word and break it down, the root actually means seat, like a chair, to sit down. It's something that supports the bottom. So less of a buttress, if you will, and more of a buttrest. Okay? 
Now, I know this will be the only thing you remember from the sermon five years from now, but at least you have one takeaway. They were very close. ESV was close. My guess is, and I'm going to speak my truth here, I feel like Wayne Grudem probably was like, I think we should use butt rest here in this verse. And J.A. Packer was like, no, God vetoed. That's my truth, my apocryphal story. Buttress, butt rest refers to the bottommost stability, what is underneath. And so I think most reasonably it is the pillar's base unit, part of the pillar, not the foundation of the whole building, but what is stabilizing that pillar to the ground, the basal support. Now, what's the point of understanding these words in this depth? We need to understand what the church is to be as a pillar, why we are to be so stabilized. We exist as this stable pillar to profess the truth. We hold it up, we prop it up, and, and we don't move. We get to verse 16. Paul has already played on the temple of Artemis with living God and with pillar and buttress. Now he plays on the worship of Artemis. Because you remember what they chanted at the Ephesian riot for two full hours? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And here Paul says, we also confess something great. Verse 16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. Great indeed is not Artemis, but godliness. The truth that the church upholds is a truth greater than Artemis. We profess a great truth, which Paul also calls a great mystery, the mystery of godliness. A mystery is something that was once covered and hidden and has now been revealed. A truth previously unknown that is now to be beheld and to be believed. Paul dissects this very mystery in the rest of verse 16. First, Jesus was manifested in the flesh. He had always existed before. In eternity past, he was at the beginning with God, but then God manifested in the flesh in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, as a man, humble to take on the form of human flesh, God incarnate, fully God and fully man at once. A mystery. We're not going to understand that. Next, he was vindicated by the Spirit. Vindicated means that Jesus was declared to be holy and righteous. And in the greatest vindication of all, Jesus rose from the dead. Now, we don't usually think of the Spirit's involvement in the resurrection. That's probably just because we forgot Romans 1, which says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. His resurrection from the dead was the Holy Spirit's attestation to his holiness, vindicated. In Christ's resurrection, the Holy Spirit vindicates Christ, proving his divinity, his authority, and his power, a mystery revealed to us. Third, seen by angels. Angels were present at his birth, singing the good news of his arrival. They ministered to him after his temptation in the wilderness at the start of his ministry. At the end of his ministry, an angel strengthened him in the garden when he was in agony at Gethsemane. And at the very end, the angels were at the tomb, declaring the good news of his resurrection and also when he ascended up into heaven. In fact, the whole message of Christ's salvation is something that First Peter says is something into which angels long to look. They're interested in it, but they don't fully understand how God could become man and save and die for his people. It's a mystery that angels long to look into this mystery, and they are a part of it. Next, proclaimed among the nations. The apostles faithfully carried out the great commission to make disciples of all nations. Paul himself preached to the Jews and Gentiles, as we saw in Ephesus, winning thousands and thousands upon souls to Christ. And Paul himself calls that a mystery. In Ephesians 3, he says it's a mystery that even Gentiles can also be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And that's in the next phrase, believed on in the world. That lost souls responding with saving faith in Jesus can have eternal life. Paul marvels at this too in Colossians, that there's the riches of the glory of the mystery that is Christ in you. A mystery. And finally, taken up in glory. Christ has ascended and is seated at the right hand of God in full authority, ruling and reigning. And one day he will return to take us up with him in glory. 1 Corinthians 15, I tell you a mystery. We shall all be changed in a moment at the last trumpet, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. 
mystery after mystery after mystery after mystery has been revealed to us in Christ. Great truths once hidden from our knowledge have now been uncovered because of Christ. The great mystery of the gospel is now realized as great truth. This is the truth, and this is the greatness that we profess and proclaim. That God himself came in human form, died and resurrected to eternal life, and now we can receive him by faith and be resurrected with him in glory. That is the church's great profession. When I was in middle school, I was really into magic. Stage magic, street magic, close-up magic, you name it. I loved it all. And if you know magic, you know there's one cardinal rule, the magician's code. You never reveal how a trick is done. Well, in the late 90s, there was a series of TV specials called The Masked Magician. And he came on TV wearing a full face mask to protect his identity. And he revealed the secrets behind dozens and dozens of popular magic tricks, popular illusions. And as you can expect, it caused a huge uproar in the magic community. But then he explained his rationale, saying that magic had become stale as an art form, as entertainment. Magicians were becoming complacent. They were losing their creative edge. They were just doing the same things. And he wanted to spark the interest of a new generation of magicians while also challenging the current older magicians to invent new methods, new routines to advance the whole craft as a whole. You know, later, Penn and Teller, who are my favorite magicians, did something similar when in their Vegas act, they took a few of their popular tricks and performed them with clear props. So they would do the cup and balls tricks, but with, with clear cups. Or they would use a, a clear stage set so you could see everything they were doing behind and underneath. And what's interesting about their routine is that when you see it, it's incredible, it doesn't remove the spectacle of magic or mystery at all. It actually serves to increase your wonder as you see it performed. The spectacle, the nature of their artistry, their dexterity, their creativity, their execution is amazing. And likewise, God took what had been hidden for ages and generations, pulled back the curtain to reveal the truth to the world in Christ Jesus. And the coming of Christ, it propelled the reality of faith forward. It was a catalyst for belief and true faith in God. The cross raised up on a hillside and a Savior raised to life is not just a catalyst. It is the centerpiece of it all. The truth raised up on display increases the wonder and the awe of this great mystery. That's what the church holds up. The church holds it up to say, look and marvel at the truth of what God has done, what has been revealed. It was hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, Paul says in Colossians. So we've seen the priority of the truth. We've seen the profession of the truth. And lastly, thirdly, the practice of the truth. The practice of the truth. You see, it's not enough for the church to know the facts, but we need to consider how we uphold it. How do we, the church, serve as, an, as a faithful and effective pillar, a steadfast and immovable buttress? How do we ensure that the truth does not fall? Really just two applications here. Learn the truth and live the truth. Learn it and live it. Sound doctrine and sound living, or to use a biblical term, good works. Sound doctrine and good works are two sides of the same coin. So first, we learn the truth. Sound doctrine. We already saw Paul's opening exhortation was to stop false teaching in the Ephesian church. But look down at 1 Timothy 4.13. He continues, Until I come, devote yourself, Timothy, to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Same chapter, verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Why all the fuss about teaching? Because that is the only way the church knows truth. We saw this last week in the idea of how the shepherd feeds his flock, so we won't rehash it. But the fact is, a church and its leaders must be able to rightly handle the word of truth. And the fact is, we live in a world, the Bible says, where people will not want to endure sound teaching. But they will have itching ears. And so they will turn away from listening to the truth to follow after people who will tell them only the myths that they want to hear. Brothers and sisters, if our job is to hold the truth steady, we need to learn the truth and be clear about the truth. 
We need to discern truth from error so that we can cling to one and shun the other. And so we pray with the psalmist, as was our scripture reading today, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Lead me in your truth and teach me. And so church, as we gather together, we must uphold the truth. We must teach truth. That's why we do expository preaching. We must sing truth with discerning song selection. We must discuss truth with one another, with willing hearts to go beyond small talk. We must counsel truth with biblical wisdom seasoned with grace. We must pray truth with scripture-fed, spirit-led, worship-based prayer. And that's the theme of our community groups this season. All that only happens when we know God's word. We need to engross ourselves in it. We must study it, meditate on it, memorize it. Psalm 1 paints the picture of a man who delights in and meditates on God's law day and night. He'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water who yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Being firmly rooted in God's word keeps us from being blown away by every wind of doctrine. So know the word. Know the truth. Learn it. And then live it. Live the truth. Here's the practical thing about truth. Truth affects how we live. Truth affects everything we do. We live our whole life based around different truths. It influences our decisions. It determines the side we take in every argument or debate. It informs all of our values and morals. For example, if you believe the weatherman when he says it'll rain, you wear a coat, bring an umbrella. When you choose your field of study or your next job, or climb the corporate ladder, it's because you believe it's good for you or the right fit or your responsibility or will make you good money. How you choose to parent your children is determined by what you believe is true about your responsibility and maybe the state of the society around us. What you think is true affects who you vote for, whether you believe campaign promises or fear the alternate. It affects whether you vote at all. Honestly, I never voted until I moved to Texas because I believed it was true that in California, my vote never made a difference. And now I firmly believe it does. What you think is true about diet and nutrition will affect what you eat tonight. Your view of local pride, team loyalty, or what you think is true of the coaches and athletes will even determine who you're rooting for today. What we believe to be true affects everything we do. And if God's truth is in us, it must affect what we do, too. So first, we practice proclaiming the truth. We actually need to tell the truth to the world. John Stott says, The purpose of pillars is not only to hold the roof firm, but to thrust it high so that it can be clearly seen, even from a distance. The church holds the truth aloft so that it is seen and admired by the world. Being a pillar means we lift high the truth. We recommend it to others. Look, if you're not really into evangelism, I bet you can still think about something you're an evangelist for. Maybe it was a good movie, or you ate at a great new restaurant, and you want others to hear about it and experience it for themselves, and so you laud it and talk about it and leave good reviews for it, right? A few years ago, my life was transformed. My whole life, I was never great about flossing. And my dentist always called me out on it back in California. But when we moved here six years ago, my new dental hygienist recommended to me the water pick. So I got one from Costco, and I've never looked back. And now my dentist on multiple occasions has called me the best patient of the day. And I know he doesn't just say that to everyone because my wife Steph and I used to always go on the same day. And they straight up told her that my gums were better than hers. Now, Steph has flossed religiously all her life. She has great oral hygiene. She's always been the star patient. And so she got really mad and started using my water pick as revenge. It's a competition now. But anyways, I'm a water pick evangelist because it changed my life. That's how things work. If you're a Christian, the gospel has changed your life. And so you've got to proclaim it to everyone. And I need to hear this too because I don't talk about Jesus with strangers as much as I talk about the water pick. Jesus is greater. That's why I'm grateful for faithful brothers among us like Thor, who some of you might know. He really has a passion for evangelism. And to see our brother Mario come to Christ the way he did and when he did should light a fire under all of us. Lord willing, Thor will actually be launching an evangelism ministry this spring, which we have planned, and we'll announce more about that soon. A pillar exalts and proclaims truth to the world. 
we also practice truth, not just by proclaiming it, but even just by the way we live it out in the local church. Among the assembly, the gathering of the church, how do our actions uphold the truth? We uphold the truth when we love God first. We uphold the truth when we forsake everything else and love God with all of our being without reserve. We uphold the truth when we sing out in worship, not caring if others hear us or what they think of us, but because God wants our worship and it only matters what he thinks. We uphold the truth when we love each other, sacrificially serving one another in humility, sharing what we have, bearing one another's burdens, rejoicing with each other, weeping with each other. We uphold the truth when we're serious about our sin, when we confess our sin to each other, when we forgive one another and are reconciled because God has forgiven us and given us the, rec- the ministry of reconciliation. We uphold the truth when we gather together as one, united as the people of God, both liberal and conservative, boomer and millennial, white collar and blue collar, a new people not divided by ethnicity or background or life experiences, or any of the things that when you turn on TV or go online, there's memes about where society today is trying to pit us against each other with differences that they consider to be irreconcilable. But within the church, all these are unified by one Lord, one faith, one God and Father of all. Now at this point, there's a warning that needs to be said. Because the same truth that unites us so miraculously and mysteriously also distinguishes us from the world. If we are doing this, it is inclusive for all who are within God's church, but it is also by nature exclusive. And what that means is, the reality is, when the world watches us, they might not like what they see. The world will see us taking stances it does not agree with. Biblical correctness is anything but politically correct. And so if we are biblical, if we resolve to be truthful, if we uphold God's righteous moral standard, we will cause offense. We need to be ready for that. We will invite harassment and threats, discomfort and suffering. The day is coming when it will be hard to say what we want to say, to stand up for the truth we believe. Truth will become hate speech. We might lose friends and family. We may lose some of our rights and freedom. We might even be called to sacrifice it all in the battle for truth. But C.S. Lewis says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. But if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. If we are a buttressed pillar, we need to be standing firm. Today is a call to ask, where will you stand firm? The truth can never be moderately important. We cannot waver lest we not function as a pillar at all. Because when it comes to holding up the unchanging truth upon the rock-solid foundation of Christ, the church cannot be a moving pillar. And one writer says the world is coming at us with pickaxes and chisels and hammers, chipping away at the pillar of the church. And sadly, the church today has been tempted to seed some ground in some small areas and then larger and then larger, allowing doctrines and practices into the church that churches of old would recoil at. And here's the thing. If the pillar crumbles in some spots, it will no longer be able to bear the entire weight of truth. The only thing more dreadful than losing our freedom, our loved ones, our well-being, or even our lives for the truth should be the terror of the condemnation that is due to the church that allows God's truth to fall. If you want to look at what God says to the unfaithful church, look no further than Revelation 2 and 3 and those letters that Jesus Christ dictated to the seven churches. But also there we will find that God rewards the faithful. You see, in one of these letters, we see the image of the pillar come up for one final time in Scripture. Revelation 3 For the faithful, those who keep God's word and endure with patience, God will make a permanent fixture in the kingdom of heaven. Those who stand firm here on earth as a church will stand firm in heaven forevermore. That is Christ our Lord's guarantee. We'll close here. If you go to Turkey today, if you visit it, you can actually see the site of the temple of Artemis. But I warn you, you will be sorely disappointed. 
because there's almost nothing there. The ruins consist mainly of a swampy marsh where the foundation once stood. And off to the side, though, there stands one lone single pillar, a sad reconstructed stack of broken marble cylinders they had collected from the site and tried to reconstruct a pillar so you could get some semblance of what it might have looked like. It only reaches 25 feet into the sky. It is hardly glorious because a pillar is only as beautiful as what it upholds and only glorified when it is serving its intended purpose. Brothers and sisters, Zoe Community Church, a pillar must not exist to exalt itself. A pillar must uphold something greater, greater than itself and outside itself. And that is our role as God's church. Zoe can never be about ourselves, our growth, building ourselves up, propping ourselves up. It's not about how great we are as a church, but how great God is and how great his truth is in us. We must not pursue growth for the sake of growth, to make a name for ourselves. We exist to make a name for the Lord, to build the kingdom of heaven, his kingdom, and to glorify him by exalting his truth. And so, like a pillar, Zoe must remain subservient to what it upholds, the truth of the word of God. So what is true? What is true? To the Christian, truth is objective and knowable. And praise God, it's absolute because it's found in him. It's the only truth that can save, and it does save. What is truth? To the church, it is everything. It's why we exist. It's what we're all about. We bow with me in prayer. Lord, this message is humbling because we know that individually and even in ways corporately, so often we fail to be about the truth. We so easily stumble or let the world have its say. And Lord, we know that we need to stand firm on the truth that you have revealed and given to us by your goodness. And so we pray that today would be a day of resolve. That Lord, we would Continue on in boldness and steadfastness, firmly fixed on the foundation of Jesus Christ alone, upholding the truth, the truth of the gospel and our glorious God, who you are and all that you have done. God, we thank you that you are stable and steadfast. And we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would help us to be stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel that we have heard and received in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We thank you, Lord, for saving us. We thank you for bringing us together as a local body here at Zoe. And we pray that you would humble us and grow us and change us and make us effective for your kingdom, that you may be honored, that your truth may be lifted high forevermore. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.